Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by Tim Bossi, Senior Vice President, Talent Solutions at System One, and my colleague Todd Bellamere, Senior Vice President of Strategic Solutions here at Definitive Healthcare. System One is the 25th largest staffing company in the United States, and they deliver recruitment and specialized workforce services across six core high growth areas, including healthcare. Tim is the leader of the healthcare practice at System One. He recruits talented people from across the healthcare industry for roles ranging from nurse leadership to clinical and scientific leadership to physician department leadership. And frankly, I can think of no one more qualified to talk with us today about the current staffing and hiring and challenges and how the great resignation is impacting the healthcare industry. So Tim, thanks for joining us today. For our audience out there, can you just give a quick overview of like who System One is and what role you play there? Sure. Thank you. I appreciate the time to speak with you, uh, Justin and Todd. And uh, uh, as you did say, System One is the 25th largest staffing company in the United States. Uh, we are a leading staffing workforce solution and integrated services organization. I do lead our healthcare practice, which is under one of our 10 different brand names under System One. Uh, which is called Jolay. We are headquartered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We have over 60 offices, Justin, throughout the United States and Europe, uh, 300 plus recruiters and talent sourcers in the company. And we're privately held with over a billion dollars in annual revenue and uh, over a thousand clients that we serve within those, those key strategic uh, sectors, over 10,000 consultants and hundreds of direct placements on a um, annual basis. So I'm real honored to uh, talk to you about some of the uh, the challenges and solutions within uh, healthcare recruitment and staffing workforce solutions. Great, great, great. You know, so Todd and I are New England Patriots fans. We won't hold the fact that you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan against you. You do have my ultimate respect for having the Cal Ripken Jr. jersey behind you here on the uh, recording session. So A plus on that one. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll, the only thing I'll just have to uh, to interject there is uh, I'm I'm from Baltimore originally, so I'm a Baltimore Raven fan. So so, so saying that about Pittsburgh is is difficult, but it, uh, we do have uh, headquarters there. It's a great city. I'm just not a Steeler fan. <laughs> I, I don't know which is worse. I don't either. We can have a whole other podcast, Todd. A whole other podcast. All right. All right. So Tim, let's just jump right in here. We are in the middle right now of what is called the Great Resignation. Across every industry, people are quitting their jobs and moving on to, quote unquote, greener pastures. Sometimes it's for more money in the same field. In other situations, people are changing fields altogether. How is all this playing out in the healthcare industry? Well, it's uh, we use this term, the uh, great resignation. Uh, that has been used a lot. Uh, I've seen uh, other names, the turnover, tsunami. Uh, I just think it's... Uh, an incredibly crazed, chaotic, and uh, complex market right now uh, for recruiting, especially in healthcare. It was that way two years ago. It was still very competitive and uh, very complex uh, because of the, the supply and demand challenges. Then uh, in the last 24 months, then you have COVID. 
So a lot of C's there with craze, chaotic, complex, competitive, and now in COVID. Uh, it is definitely a, a time in my 30 years of being in uh, the workforce solutions sector. Uh, I haven't seen anything like it. In November, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, the number of Americans who voluntarily quit their jobs hit a record of 4.5 million. In December, that number declined all the way down to 4.3 million, which is just the second highest number on record. Are you seeing the same rate of people quitting their jobs in the healthcare space? We are. So we continue to, to bring on new clients as well as have longstanding strategic relationships with hospitals, small community-based critical access hospitals, and then large, uh, very well-named uh, hospitals throughout the United States. There's resignations going on and uh, in all areas from the physicians to the, to the nursing, to ancillary services, allied health. And one of the key areas that we're seeing right now, uh, especially now that we're hitting the 24-month uh, mark of the pandemic, is we're starting to see managers and leaders resign. So where you had the frontline workers, such as the physicians and the nurses, now we're starting to see the leadership resign. And that is a, uh, that's a very critical state right now because many of them would stay and were staying through the crisis. Now they are uh, beginning to resign and either retire and or look for uh, other opportunities. And does that seem like it's, it's you know, obviously part of the burnout that the frontline workers are seeing? Does the leadership, obviously, you know, there's a rub off effect there where you know, they are also getting burnt out as well. Is the the rationale for them leaving kind of uh, correlating to what it, we, you see from the frontline workers? I think there is. I think the burnout piece, the uh, just the workers being exhausted, whether you're uh, coming in and uh, in the registration side all the way through uh, laboratory services, ancillary services, allied health, up to the physicians. Uh, you're seeing burnout, you're seeing exhaustion, but the piece with the management and leaders, and I'm talking more specifically around department heads, so managers, directors uh, that stayed on and provided unbelievable amounts of time and resources and, and sacrifices. Uh, are starting to uh, starting to resign on top of Todd and Justin, what you said, just with the front line, which are usually defined as the physicians and nurses. Right. I can imagine that, you know, when you're managing a group of people that are under that amount of stress that, you know, it, mu it must just rub off on you quite a bit to, you know, not only the stress that you're feeling in your job to do your work, but, you know, all that that excess uh, stress uh, compounding almost on the on those leaders, too. So that, that makes a lot of sense. When you, when you look at things by specialty for ancillary services, like you said, so, you know, PT, the, the therapists, even social workers, I would imagine that, you know, do you, do you see that type of specialty having the same high turnover rates that you do for maybe emergency care workers? I was just trying to see what the sort of the, the groupings might be in terms of higher versus lower might be. Yeah, I, I think I think that those those areas, if, if we separate the physicians and the nurses uh, and then we look at, uh, as you said, the, the, the allied space and the ancillary services that provide the additional support to uh, to those other departments. I, I think the, the I think there's a level of uh, obligation and possibly guilt uh, not to leave like some of the nurses and physicians and go to other 
uh, opportunities during the pandemic, they, they felt a obligation to stay uh, at that facility or stay at that health system. So now that we're hitting the two-year mark, it's become even more uh, critical if you're a hospital executive and, and one of the administrators, now you're seeing the consistent challenges around staffing and retention, and now you're having it at the leadership ranks. Uh, and that is, uh, that, that's becoming more, uh, more paramount every day with us. Yeah, so I've got some interesting stats here to kind of back up uh, what you're talking about here, Tim. I'd love for you to react a little bit to this. So according to a recent American Medical Association study, one in five physicians and two in five nurses intend to leave their current practice within the next two years. And then I read a different AMA study recently that said the expense to replace just one physician could replace almost $250,000 in recruiting costs and that they estimate the cumulative cost of turnover and reduced clinical hours due to physician burnout is estimated at $4.6 billion of annual expense. So how do hospital executives deal with this? What can they do to make healthcare more attractive, deal with some of the stress? Like, what do you do if you're running a hospital? Well, the first thing, those, those numbers are, are staggering and uh, continue. Uh, and I think it's, it's probably even much greater than that. I think, I think the first thing, there, there's multiple things that uh, hospital executives and ministers can do. And one of the first things that, I, that I, I would recommend is do everything you possibly can to retain the staff that you have. That's the first thing. There's so much discussion about the resignation, as you said, we see consistently with our clients throughout the United States is, can we have support? Can you help us recruit here? Can we have additional resources? We're doing this project. We're having these gaps. And the first thing that I would say is look at the resources and staff that you have and do everything you possibly can to retain them and bear hug them and make sure they don't leave. That's one of the first things. Now, the other things which are just things that we have seen over the time even the phrase of the healthcare heroes, that's starting to get, starting to fade away. And I've seen some negative uh, articles and, and information out there about just how, uh, what, are, were we heroes or were we just doing our job? Now we're, now we're on the, now we're considered an enemy sometimes. And uh, it's, it's just a very uh, interesting dynamic going on. But the first thing that I would say to administrators and executives is retain the staff that you have. And absolutely look at every aspect of the benefits, the compensation, the workforce, the work setting that they're working in, and the different types of roles and responsibilities uh, that they have, uh, that they've been uh, really looking at over the last two years and experience. When you when you look at those sorts of strategies, do you, have you seen sort of the the increase in compensation starting to sort of rear its head as we've gotten deeper and deeper into the pandemic? Now, looking for any strategy whatsoever to try to to sort of like you said, bear hug those employees and keep them. I would imagine that the compensation piece is is probably something that is coming to the forefront quite a bit. Have you seen that? It, it, it is. I, I think compensation is always in, in any of the sectors, quite frankly, across system one and, and all the areas that we that we work across with our thousand plus clients. But compensation is usually in the top three. Uh, and you know, when someone's looking at a job, it's looking to potentially move. And uh, as we're talking about retaining the staff. So most healthcare workers, if you went into a hospital today 
and you pulled them all into the in, into the uh, auditorium and you asked them how many got into the healthcare and the medical profession because of compensation and money, and most would not raise their hand. It is important. Uh, you want to be paid fairly. So we are seeing facilities become more flexible, uh, what I think is good because what we what we see is when we when we provide candidates to facilities and to hospitals and, and health systems, we provide a profile. And that profile outlines, and it's their story, it's the candidate's story around their per personal, professional, and financial drivers of why they're interested in this position. So we tell that story. And one of the things that they want to know is there is there growth there. And we are starting to see compensation in particular areas begin to increase, which I think is very helpful and never hurts. But the other thing just to, to uh, follow up on that, Todd, is the fact that there have been a lot of bonuses that have been uh, paid out uh, with the different government uh, relief funds and different uh, monies that have been available. And now that's going away. So that was a temporary uh, reward for what they were doing. And I think what, what facilities need to do is really look at the current compensation, all the benefits involved by position uh, with the roles and responsibilities. Are you seeing any geographic variations? Are people moving to certain regions away from others? Are they going rural, urban, north, south, east, west? Well, we, we are seeing more of a, uh, a movement uh, from some of the hardest hit areas and uh, with COVID. So in the Northeast, in some of the Eastern states uh, and some of the, the states in the West, we are seeing uh, more of a migration. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that there is, I, I can't pinpoint and say, okay, everyone is moving to Florida or everyone is moving to Texas. Uh, there is a lot of movement. Uh, and I think one of the things that we're seeing as, as candidates, and it's a very good point, because if you're if you're looking to move for a full time position and you're in New York City, are you going to move to Denver, Colorado? Are you going to move to Boise? Why would you consider moving when you have opportunities in the region, maybe where you lived or you went to school or you have family? So we are seeing movement. We are seeing out of some of the areas that were the hardest hit. But it, it, it really is geographically critical, whether it's north, southeast, west, across the, the facilities. And then we haven't even talked about the rural areas yet, which have been incredibly impacted. Yeah, I got one stat here that kind of really hits that, which is that the Health Resources and Services Administration released a report recently that said rural regions make up more than 60% of the healthcare workforce shortage in the country. So how do you help address that from your seat? It's a challenge. So if you're a physician or you're a nurse and or you're a nurse leader or you're a department or an operational leader in management, uh, what are the benefits of going to a rural area or a smaller community base or a critical access facility? And there are benefits that you have in those locations versus being in larger metropolitan cities. And some of that has to do with more of, uh, and I hear this frequently. And when I ask, why would someone want to go to ABC Hospital in this rural community? And one of the first things uh, the administrators, the executives tell me is it's the environment. It's the, it is the culture. It's the, family, uh, it's the family atmosphere and setting. And in healthcare, 
compared to our other sectors uh, that we recruit for, so in IT or legal or financial services and engineering, you hear culture a lot more than you do in healthcare. So I think that when you're trying to go to a smaller 25-bed hospital in a particular state, the, one of the biggest benefits of going rural is the cost of living, the size of the communities, the real estate, and maybe just getting back to a simpler lifestyle and still being able to provide care as a nurse or a leader or a physician. When you when you talk about that the sort of the culture and you know when moving to maybe a smaller hospital and that sort of thing, I, I, it always makes me think of you know the the age split in the current healthcare uh, market. You know there there's a lot of older physicians and you know and I say older maybe say forty and up uh, in terms of uh, who is out there that might be thinking of moving around. I, I think maybe some of the younger cohorts of either physicians or ancillary services, whether they be therapists slash even PAs and NPs, I would think that they have more opportunity to move away. But but the culture piece makes me think that it's, you know, as you you age into your your profession, maybe that becomes more of a consideration. Some of the older healthcare professionals are more likely to move to a, a more rural space, uh, maybe creating more opportunity in, in urban cities or in the big cities. That's, that's fair. So, so more experienced uh, healthcare professionals, I think when you don't have possibly as many uh, personal commitments that you have more flexibility to, to move. Uh, but on the flip side of that, it is, it's still when someone moves from a uh, from a, a metro city into that uh, into the rural area, then you're going to have that vacancy. Uh, but why was someone in a particular area? Maybe they like the uh, the school system better. Maybe they like the the cultural activities that they had. Maybe they wanted a big city from uh, maybe a sports opportunities and culture and arts and and things like that. But when you go to the rural area, we we are seeing more experience. Uh, healthcare professionals consider it than ones that have uh, maybe then uh, 10 years or less experience. Do, do you feel that's going to feed more into that cycle of, you know, a, a shortage of physicians? So, you know, for the New York cities and, and the larger uh, metro areas, as we see more of the seasoned professionals move, uh, maybe, you know, more of them move into uh, smaller areas, you know, because we're not backfilling those at a rate in which we uh, would have enough to cover the spots that are, are, are leaving. Do you see this as a sort of cycle where we're going to end up in a spot or, or exacerbate the, the dearth of new healthcare professionals coming into the market? Well, the, the first thing is, I, th I think one of the data points here, you have 122,000 physicians that will be short in, uh, by 2032. Now we have that getting even more impacted by the fact that uh, as uh, the over 65 population continues to grow, that's going to continue to grow at 48% going up to 2032. So you have a lot of physicians that will be retiring. So when one person leaves, there's another opening and there's not enough across the physician and the nursing uh, recruitment and from the pipelines and the education side that are filling the, these openings. And, and I think the, the other thing to add on that, Todd, is if you take away just COVID in the last 24 months, which we can't, 
this crisis pandemic, we've never seen this before. These challenges were there in 2020. It is, you hear phrases, the war for talent that's been out there for long. And uh, the other thing that I was going to add to that is when we talk about candidates, it's the can it's a candidate's market. They have choices. They'll have choices for the next 10, 15, 20 years, in my opinion. Yeah. From uh, 2020 to 2021, I got some pretty alarming data. According to some of the research in our database, we saw family practice went down by a net 1,800 providers this year. Surgery went down by almost 1,000 providers year over year. These are people leaving the industry and no longer filing claims. Internal medicine down by 850 providers. General practice down by 800 providers. OBGYN down by 600 providers. These are folks leaving the workforce and not getting backfilled. And so I think we have a supply-demand problem now. I mean, 2032, yes, that's a huge problem. But even today, I think it has rattled off three, 4,000 providers leaving the nation or leaving the practice, excuse me, as more and more people are getting sick and now we're getting into the delays of care as we start to get out of the COVID crisis, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, everything else, and people start to resume uh, the care that they may have pushed off during the pandemic. What do we do here? Well, the... We, we could spend hours talking about the, the, the numbers. And I think, and we've talked about the physicians, we've talked about the, uh, the nurses, but if you think of the entry, if you take, there'll be a gap of over 400,000 home health aides. So even as you shift care into more uh, other healthcare settings or home settings, that's 400,000 home health care aides. You have 29,000 nurse practitioners. And this is in the next three years, not even going up to 2032. Uh, you have 200,000 nurses that are needed every year from now until 2026. So that's over a million nurses. So what, what can be done is, is it gets complex. I think that facilities, I think uh, governments, I think the states, the federal level, that there needs to be, uh, there needs to be strategy today and there needs to be strategy over the next 1836 uh, months as well. We have to uh, build these pipelines of talent. We have to look how to retool, retrain, rebuild this healthcare workforce. And uh, as I said earlier, 30 years, uh, and I got into uh, this industry in 1992, pre-internet, and the amount of opportunities, it's great to be a candidate because there's a lot of opportunities. There's no question. The speed, the, the, the access to opportunities has, has never been uh, seen before. But what are we going to do right now? And I think there has to be a strategy on the local front. Uh, and there has, to be, uh, there has to be a progression around the education. Uh, there has to be um, uh, different programs. Uh, we, have to, we just have to start earlier. Uh, and attract. It doesn't mean that you have to be a physician. Work your way through the the, the healthcare worker uh, ecosystem. It, it feels like it almost has to have the same mindset as you said with employers trying to retain their employees. It has to be that find ways to make it attractive to people. So that goes from the the, the cost of 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 training. So universities, how much they're charging for a medical degree down to, you know, the, the time it takes and, and, you know, again, getting more people to get in the front door. So it's a filter, right? The number of people who come in through the universities to go to, to med school, 
down to who actually makes it and end up being a doctor. That has to be opened up a little bit. And so maybe part of the way to to have the top of the funnel wider is to reduce some of those costs. And again, that strategy has to be, you know, similar to like you said, for employers, we have to look at all avenues, whether it's it's money, it's, you know, the attractiveness of the job, it's the the ability to to get in. Uh, all those things have to be on the table from a, a governmental, from a university, uh, from a society level, because if people are starting to feel now, like you said in the beginning, that sort of mind shift change of they were the heroes and now they're, you know, in between somewhere with some, you know, parts of our community – like that has to change too, because who would want to go into a position where you know they're they're seeing the the debt that you can go into as well as the environment uh, in, in the public as well. Let let me add it. Let me add a couple uh, points and and some suggestions, recommendations. So one one of the things is that I, I do think that you need to you need to address, as we said, retain your staff today. Do everything you possibly can. Uh, and and through the crisis and through the pandemic, facilities and leaders have done a great job at uh, reshifting staff, uh, looking at roles and responsibilities that can be done remotely, uh, moving staff, especially when there weren't as many surgeries, uh, having people do different roles within the, the, the facility and, and got creative with that. But that was crisis uh, and strategy type decisions. Uh, what I would do, uh, once you do everything you possibly can to focus on re- retaining staff, then I would put this, this short-term and long-term strategy in place around talent attraction. And what I would do there is I'd have a playbook and I'd have a formula of what you're doing, whether you're working in a small community-based hospital or a large metro uh, facility, and, and build a plan uh, at all levels. So there has been a challenge of even getting volunteers in the last two years uh, because of just COVID and the protocols. So there's a lot of money that is, uh, that, uh, is costs that have reduced because you have volunteers. Now you take volunteers all into uh, admitting, into ancillary services, into environmental services, into housekeeping, all the way up to the physicians. So I have a short-term plan of, of retaining I would make talent acquisition, a, I'd have a seat at the um, senior executive level, just like you have a chief financial officer, not that you don't have a chief human resources officer, but you have a chief talent officer, or whatever name you want to call it, because you hear about talent is our most important asset and people are our most important asset. Uh, the things that you do in leadership of appreciating and thanking and listening to your staff at all levels. Uh, now we're two years into the pandemic, and those things continue, and they get a little, they get a little bit more. They don't have as much impact. So there are the things that I would do immediately, and what I would, what I would say about which I think adds to a lot more complexities is how do you get people interested in the industry? How do you have an LPN now want to become a, an RN or an RN to a nurse practitioner when you're going to have those twenty? thousand, 29,000 openings for nurse practitioners in three years, where is that coming from? So what you had just addressed is around the, the programs, around the training, around the, the education. And something that just uh, was released in the last two weeks is what the state of New York has done. Uh, their program that they just announced, they're going to invest $10 billion. And this is for the state of New York. So if you think about New York, that was hit the uh, and impacted unbelievably through COVID, 
they've just announced that they're going to invest $10 billion over the next five years and try to increase their healthcare professionals and that workforce by 20%. And that's being done. They're retaining, rebuilding, and growing their healthcare workforce. They're going to add $4 billion for, for wages and $2 billion to pursue retention bonuses. But what you just hit upon is what are they going to do? How do you retrain, retool? They're going to have $3,000 in uh, full-time workers bonuses. They're going to get $500 million for cost of living adjustments. And one of the most important things is there's going to be free opportunities for free tuition. There's going to attract students into that. Start in middle school all the way through. Make it easier for, for uh, healthcare professionals to come into your state. So, and I'm, I'm, I bring up this with New York because if we did that state by state or we did it on a federal level and take this healthcare crisis, this healthcare professional crisis that we're in and exacerbated by COVID, we, we, we could really start to, to make this a profession where people want to go in and, um, and then continue and evolve through it. Right. It sounds like really a model to start with. And I, if you think about the difficulties maybe to cross license across states and things like that, if we try to reduce that too, it, again, it, it allows for that, you know, maybe increased competition for sure between states, but also, again, it, it allows a little more freedom and again, makes it more attractive to be as a profession. Correct. And that is one of their suggestions about making sure, I mean, you, you have reciprocity between states uh, on the nurse licensure side and, and parts of, of, of the physician, why, why wouldn't you make it in all 50 states? Why do you have to have a crisis to, to have physicians go over border, or, you know, go over the line uh, and, and different state lines? The other thing that, the, that I thought was an interesting fact that, that New York is suggesting uh, and recommending with this investment is to, to build workforce development uh, partnerships and talent pipelines. And if they can do that on a uh, on a state the size of New York, some of that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, and that is to move some of the talent out to the rural areas inside of the state of New York. So you you open up those opportunities to move your talent where the the greatest need is, and and to make make it attractive for someone to to leave you know New York City to to go upstate New York or or to some other areas. You know, Tim, as I'm listening to you talk, these are some really good ideas. I think what the city of New York is doing is absolutely fascinating. I find myself wondering if there's any way that like we can use technology to make up for some of these shortages, right? More moves to virtual care, more remote patient monitoring, chronic condition management. I mean, obviously healthcare is, is a full contact sport, if you will. You got to be able to actually touch the patient and see the patient. But do you think we can use technology to address any of these shortages? I, I, I definitely do. And we're, there, you're seeing it now in facilities that have used technology. Let's just use it from a standpoint of the admitting uh, patients. So they're using technology and they're using uh, the workers that have shifted to, uh, to being remote. So they do not have to come in to admit the patient. So you're using the tech, you're using your EMR system, you're using some type of technology and you're using a remote one of your remote uh, colleagues that, that's going to admit. So you could use technology for that. If we had a button that we could push that could uh, create a physician or a nurse, uh, that would be spectacular. But technology has played, uh, 
has provided benefits from what I've seen with this crisis staffing models that these hospitals have, have talked about over the last 24 months. How, how that goes into the future, uh, you know, anything that's efficient, anything that will uh, that save time and money, if you can do it with uh, technology and remote staff, I think, uh, I think there's a benefit there. Plus, you talk a lot about uh, working from home and remote workers and changing workforce, uh, changing hours and schedules. Uh, that's the experience. That's how you're also going to retain staff. Listen, the physicians, the doctors, the nurses, the PTs, OTs, you, you still have to be in the hospital. But the teledoc, uh, certain professions, certain specialties, absolutely, the telemedicine took off. And I think that uh, that's, that is not going away uh, at all. Are you seeing doctors leave the physical workforce, quote unquote, and move to the virtual care delivery organizations like Teladoc, like American Well, like, you know, all these other companies that are out there hiring doctors to, you know, talk to people solely from, you know, their home offices? Yes, we are. And uh, we have actually physicians and nurses, uh, like on the case management side, that, uh, that continuously contact us and say, could we have, uh, or do you have opportunities uh, to do telemedicine? Do we have opportunities that we can work? Uh, there's different programs out there, especially in the, uh, the government side where they have large case management teams all over the United States and you work remotely. That is, I, I think if these caregivers and these frontline workers want to leave the industry or leave the setting that they're in, the hospital setting, provide opportunities where they can take that experience and still, uh, and still contribute. And the telemedicine is absolutely going to continue to grow. The numbers have been staggering, but use workforce, have, have a flexible workforce that wants to do that. And that's usually with more experience and seasoned uh, physicians. Take nurses and, and doctors that want to uh, only work uh, part-time. Instead of leaving, if you can only work full-time and that's what the hospitals are telling you, that's what they want. Why are you going to get, why are you not going to utilize uh, someone that uh, used two part-timers? So I just think flexibility in the staffing models, because there's such a, a supply constraint, let's, let's look at uh, flexible ways to, uh, to provide the, the care. So look, Tim, this has been a fascinating conversation. To kind of put it in macro terms here, I think we've had a really a classic conversation about supply and demand. Healthcare is a recession-proof industry, right? There's always going to be demand for healthcare. In fact, I think we've said demand's going to continue to increase. And at the same point in time, you have got supply constricting as medical providers are leaving the field in droves. So in the old classic supply and demand, I'm going back to business school here, and I hope I don't screw this up. But I think if you have increasing demand and decreasing supply, your price goes up. And we already know that healthcare is a massively expensive proposition in the United States, driving nearly 20% of its GDP. So if I were to name you suddenly you know, president of the United States or head of the U.S. economy, how do we solve this massive supply and demand problem? <laughs> really unfair question. It, we're, we're, at, we're at a beyond a critical state now. And it's, 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 it's hard to even think, I know from speaking to these, these healthcare executives and the hospital executives, to even think two, three years down the road. I, I'm suggesting, okay, put a chief town officer at, at, the, at the board table. Okay, that's one thing that, but you you have to look at the talent. You have to look at what brings the revenue in. Uh, the chances of OR and surgeries being uh, 
being closed like they did early in the first year of the pandemic, that's that's going to be very difficult to ever uh, be sustainable again. So what do you do? How do you how do you improve uh, your financials? How do you improve the revenue growth? And then how you uh, how do you maintain your 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 costs? And the the costs have skyrocketed uh, for for contract healthcare labor. You know, it was you know for for a travel nurse it was a thousand dollars two years ago. Now they're making uh, a week. Now they're making over twenty five hundred average. Where some have been making up to five thousand. So you have escalating cost. Uh, you have a uh, a supply challenge, and you have people leaving like over the five hundred thousand that have left since uh, since last year just in healthcare. So you have a lot of things colliding here. Uh, I think that you just focus on the short term, uh, retaining, putting a program in place, building talent pipelines, and then long term, uh, make sure that the education, the programs, tuition, flexibility in staff, use technology, and take care of the, the patients the best that you can. So let's give them some free advice. If I was a healthcare senior executive talking to you about how I should think about hiring, in the midst of, we're still in the midst of the pandemic here, why not? What advice would you give me? Well, first of all, take a breath. Uh, You're open 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days. There's no other sector like it. Uh, I would would look at recruitment partners, companies like System One and others, and have a hybrid approach, build up a world-class town acquisition team. Like if I was a hospital executive listening to this, one of the things I'd say is get town acquisition at, at, at the seat of your table, separated from uh, human resources, and make sure that you speed, that you get the speed to hire faster. Because you have facilities that are still taking the same approach to looking at talent. If Todd is a physician and Todd all of a sudden has three or four more opportunities, there's two hospitals that are going to hire much faster. And you have to do that. And you're talking hundreds and hundreds of openings times thousands of hospitals. So we just, you have to change, let COVID be the, the foundation of changing how you source, screen, and select candidates. Right. It's a multifaceted problem with a multifaceted solution. There really is no single, you know, silver bullet here. And, you know, my takeaway today, Tim, is that you're sitting on the front lines of all of it. And what a fascinating place to be. Your hours must be long. Your days must be long. So uh, we're not going to take any more of your time today, but we are going to thank you uh, for not only joining us on the podcast today, but also helping to make sure that those healthcare professionals are where they need on the front lines, delivering the care to the people who need it most. So Todd, thank you. Tim, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to Definitively Speaking, a Definitive Healthcare Podcast. Please join me next time for an afterwards episode where Brittany, Todd, and I will break down today's podcast and offer our own thoughts on the future of staffing in the healthcare industry. Then join me in two weeks for a conversation with Cara McNulty, president of Behavioral Health and Resources for Living at CVS Health. As many of you know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Cara and I will have a conversation around the importance of mental health and well-being and how CVS Health is making mental health treatment as easy to get as treatment for a sprained ankle. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. 
Until next time, take care and please stay healthy.